The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hey, it's Jesse. It's a holiday weekend here in the United States, and that means the team and I are taking today off. So I'm sharing an episode from our very first season. It's a good one. I got to talk to Angela Ahrens about intuition and why it's so important that we figure out how to trust our guts. Enjoy. From the editorial team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday, a show where I investigate the changing nature of work and how that work is changing us. And today I want to talk about intuition, your gut. It's that ability to understand something rather than relying on just your conscious reasoning. In business and in life, it often gets a bad rap. I found this clip of Angela Arendt's giving a TEDx talk on the subject many years ago. Why is it that we value thinking over feeling? Why aren't we taught to follow our natural inclinations, to protect the possibilities instead of just accepting the probabilities? By any measure, Angela is one of the most accomplished business leaders of all time. She came up in fashion and in 2006 turned around a failing Burberry. And just when things were going great, Angela did something unexpected. Five years ago, she gave up the CEO job and joined Apple as head of retail. On paper, it was a move that didn't make any sense. But Angela knew, just like she'd known at other important moments in her life, that this was the right move. Don't get me wrong, Angela is a sharp, analytical thinker with a mind for business, but she puts as much energy into embracing her intuition as she does into studying spreadsheets, and it shows. This spring, we spoke during her final days at Apple. She was preparing to take a break and get quiet enough within herself to hear her gut guide her to what will come next. Here's Angela. I know that you grew up in Indiana, but I don't know very much about how you got from Indiana to New York. And so I'd love to start there. Yeah, absolutely. So Indiana, one of six. You can't be right in the middle, so I'm third. (laughs) And five girls, one boy. Just the the perfect Midwestern, strong family values, you know, strong foundation. And I only share that because I had that foundation. I could go anywhere in the world and never fail because I could always go home. (laughs) So I... Always loved fashion, and my older sister went to Ball State University, and I didn't really know what I was going to do. I would sew, and I would design things, and and I went to visit her one time at university, and I saw this sign in this building, right, talking about design and merchandising courses, and I can still picture that sign in my head today because that that was the moment when, ah, that's me. Like, <laughs> so I'm going to go to Ball State, and that's what I'm going to do, and so I did that. And um, did you know what merchandising was? No. At that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I knew it was about stuff, right? And it yeah. was about fashion. And but no, no. So I signed up for every course, et cetera. I was very blessed about the first year in. I was in some of these design classes, and again, I can picture them like it was yesterday. You know how you do those pivotal times in your life, and and I'm watching all of these people design, and they're incredible, and I'm not, and I'm working and working and working, and I just can't, you know. So I had a, a professor, Dr. Whitaker, come up to me at one point, and she said, I think you're a merchant. And I kind of looked at her. 
And she said, you're struggling design-wise, but you have a very strong opinion on what everybody else is doing, and, you, and you're able to help them make theirs better, right? Right. <clears throat> and she said, so we call that gift a merchant. And it was really, that then helped me shift over a little bit more, and I loved the marketing. And I just knew, I just knew I was going to go to New York and and get in the fashion industry. And Well, so two things jump out about that to me. The first is I'm thinking about that professor and the way that she gave her advice to you. I'm framed another way. You're not very good at this design thing. But she mm-hmm. didn't tell you that. She said, you know, your gift is mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I think that if we live very open, I think that we have a lot of angels in our life that come in at those different moments. And we just have to stay open. I so fully agree with you on that. So when you went to New York, did you go with anyone? Did your mom say that's a great idea? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm opposite. <laughs> <laughs> I knew, so my mother and father, um, we belonged to this little country club, and, and they knew one man who owned a little local store in one of the local malls, and, and he worked with a buying office in New York. So my dad had reached out to him, and I had a cup of coffee with him, and I had one contact in New York, Charlie Cooper, and Charlie owned a buying office back then, a menswear buying office, and then I had the one meeting with Charlie, and Charlie made a couple of phone calls and was able to get me into a small menswear company called Damon. It wasn't exactly where I wanted to start. It wasn't, but all I cared about was getting my foot in the door, and I think that's all all of us need, right, is that lucky break just to... And, and I think so many times people wait till it's perfect. It'll never be perfect. Get in. Right. Right. And, right. Then, and then work your way to what else needs to be. And How did you understand at that point in your life, in your early and mid-20s, what your career was to you and how central it would be to you? I've always thought I never wanted a job. Like I didn't want to work. I wanted it to be a part of my life a part of my being. I have since discovered that I'm what you call a 50-50. I'm half right brain, which is empathy, creative thinking, and I'm half left brain, which is, and I've learned that that's odd. I've learned there's only 9% of us in the world. And I vowed when I was really young that I didn't want a job. I wanted it to be my life. I wanted to be so passionate about what I wanted to do. I didn't want to dread getting up in the morning. And I've always, I've said that my whole life, nothing I've ever done has felt like a job. Mm-hmm. And you don't turn it on and off. It's not a nine to five thing. When it is your life, you live it 24-7, the things you see and read and, 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 and chat with other people about. How did you know which right step to take next? You know what? I don't think you do know. And and if you do and you make too perfect of a plan, you're going to miss all of the other opportunities because you're going to turn them off and say no because you're trying to live by your plan. Right. And so I don't think you do know. It's funny. And I think so much of it is subconscious. I mean, I was running Liz Claiborne with another woman. And, and Trudy one day came to me and she said, you've been here seven, eight years. Would you ever leave? And, and what would it take you to leave? And and I just very quickly said, you know, I love luxury. I love an international business. And I would love something that I could really drive retail-wise because Liz was more wholesale. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of said it instinctively off the top of my head. And literally a week later, I get a phone call that says, hey, can we have a conversation? And, and right? And it was and that and Burberry was exactly those things I said instinctively again. So Okay, so let's peel that back a little bit. There's so much that is interesting about that. 
for one, it sounds like when you say instinctively, you mean it didn't come from your head. It came from someplace else. It came from where? Yeah, I guess, like you said, it didn't come from my head because I didn't take the time to overthink it. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Did it come from my heart, my soul, my gut, right? They, everyone calls it something different. It just, But it, it was the most natural response. So obviously it was in my head and my heart. So let's talk about that first move from Liz Claiborne to Burberry. So you said no, and then what happened? And then they call again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then they say, well, just a cup of coffee. And you just have that cup of coffee. And she said a couple of things that that kind of played in the back of my mind. She looked at me at one point and she said, how many female CEO jobs do you think will come your way? Right? Now, I'm not a title person at all, but it was her way of saying, if you ever really want to run something, here's a huge opportunity. Right. Are you really sure? Then you really go go deep into your soul. And then I started chatting with my husband. And, and then you start to look at, okay, but it can't just be for you, Angela, right? So now let's talk about your husband and let's talk about three children under the age of 10. And, and the more that I thought about it, I thought how incredible for the kids to go to an international school right, to become global citizens, to, and so so I loved the thought of that. I loved, and then my husband, I always loved to travel. And I said, you know, why don't we do this? Why don't we go over for X amount of years? You know, it'll be great for the kids. We, mom and dad, we can bring our families over two or three times a year and travel. So, you know, once I think that maybe it's good for me, but then I take everything else into consideration because when it's all said and done, The job will go and the kids will go and I need to make sure I'm going to live happily ever after with my husband. I'm hearing you say, Angela, in different ways that when opportunities came up, rather than judging them narrowly on the sort of the path, is this the next right thing I should do? You're looking broadly at like, how is this going to advance me as a person toward a larger goal rather than how am I going to get to be a better fashion designer or a better contractor, as it were? It was never about fashion, right? And I said that at Burberry early on. It was a business that happened to be in the business of fashion. Apple is a business that happens to be in the business of technology. All right, we're taking a quick pause here. Coming up after the break, we hear from LinkedIn's senior news editor, Maya Pope-Chapelle, on what makes people successful. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. And we're back. This week, we're joined by LinkedIn's senior news editor, Maya Pope-Chapelle. Hey, Maya. Hi, Jesse. It's a pleasure being here with you. Angela's story is perfectly in line with the series that I host and produce on LinkedIn called How I Got Here. It highlights the varied blueprints for career success where guests like Angela talk about everything from their first job, pivotal moments in their career, challenges they've faced, and lessons that they've learned along the way. And what stood out to me about her story is her reliance on her gut instincts. I think the idea of being able to tune out the naysayers and relying on what you know to be true, your intuition essentially, is one of the reasons for her success. 
Are you hearing that from other people that you're interviewing? Definitely. There's folks like Melissa Butler, for instance, who built a $7 million beauty business. And she was told a ton of times that it wouldn't work, that she couldn't build a business. She didn't get any investments. But she said, you know what? In my gut, I know this is going to work. And it did. You know, it's easy after the fact to hear the story and be like, well, of course you pressed on. But the people who have the foresight before they see the success to move on anyways, it just amazes me. Definitely. I think it's having that drive and that perseverance that is really key. Yeah. So what are some of the other common threads you found that run through these stories? Well, Angela also talked about the passion that she brings to her work. She really tapped into her calling in life. And the people who I have spoken to have done the same thing. There's Camila Forbes, for example. She's a director and producer who has worked on TV and in theater. She defied her parents by pursuing a career in the arts instead of studying to become a doctor or an engineer. But the arts and the theater is what she was drawn to and ultimately what she decided to pursue. Some other common threads that I found in the stories of successful people is their willingness to learn, to soak up as much knowledge and information as they can. Angela, for instance, is a voracious reader, and the people that I've profiled are also very curious people. They're obsessed with gaining information and consuming content. Bryant Terry, for example, he's a James Beard award-winning chef, reads a ton of biographies and autobiographies of great and successful people to learn and to be inspired. Finally, I think the willingness to deviate from your intended path is something that's present in a lot of these stories. I think having a plan is important, but being willing to scrap whatever plans you had is equally as important because in doing so, you're able to discover new paths or opportunities. And that was a case for Broadway actress Mandy Gonzalez. She took on roles sometimes that she didn't really want but they enabled her to get a foot into the door and to learn something new that she could then carry on into her next thing. So I think sometimes it's just about saying yes. And I think that was true also for Angela. It might not be perfect or exactly what you want at first, but you can get there by taking on new things. Thank you, Maya. Now back to my conversation with Angela Ahrens. At Burberry, Angela worked with creative director Christopher Bailey. They had worked together before when Angela was at Donna Karen. So I've heard you talk about that relationship with Christopher before, and I want to know sort of what made him the right collaborative partner for you. Was it an energy that existed between the two of you? Did you connect to his work in a different way? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think a couple of things. I think that, one, he's 10 years younger, and so I felt he would be an incredible bridge to the future. And, And then we had a whole nother group that was 10 years younger than him. Because in order to stay on the forefront, right, you have to know, but but it's harder the older you get to naturally know what's coming next. It's instinctive when you're really young, right? You just know it. So I love the age difference. And I love that you use the word energy because, yeah, there was a natural energy from when I used to say goodbye to him in his little office at Donna Karen, and we'd be the last two there at night, and, and I'd kind of be walking out, and I'd see his little light on, and I'd peek my head in, and we'd chat for 10 or 15 minutes. And, and I think that he is humble, kind, gracious, brilliantly, brilliantly talented, but it's the combination of all of those, right? Talent with arrogance goes nowhere. But he had this this incredible combination, and, and he was just a very deep, gentle soul. And so I think the most importantly, I think, for both of us was there was an innate trust. 
And we wanted to make sure that at Burberry, we only hired people that we had that innate trust with because we were going to do some big, bold things and we were going to move fast and we needed to divide and conquer. And neither one of us wanted to have to micromanage every move. And when you got to Burberry, Burberry was in need of change and you presented a plan. And upon review of the plan, you were told in short order (laughs) that it probably was not going to (laughs) work. By the consulting firm that I hired to help give me all the facts on the plan. Thank you. But it did work. In fact, it worked in spades. So talk to us about the process of how that unfolded. Mm -hmm. So Christopher and I have a plan on the back of a napkin, if you will. So we very quickly in the first couple of months hired the three or four key people we needed to. He already knew, you know, a lot of the team that existed, et cetera. So so we very quickly said, who are our top five lieutenants, functional experts that would help us do what we needed to do? And then we actually went off site with the top 100 people in the company. And that's when I had actually brought in the consulting firm, not to create the strategy, but to validate it. Right. So if we were going to go from 75 percent wholesale to 75 percent retail, then, hey, consulting firm, tell me 200 places in the world where three of our peers have stores and we don't. Right. So I wanted the data behind it. Our instincts we knew we we felt like we needed to go younger in order to separate ourselves. But but tell me then how young those markets are once you tell me where those stores are. Right. Mm -hmm. And so so I really wanted them to confuse me with the facts. I've always said I start with my instincts first and then I want those facts to back it up. And then there's just nothing to stop it. So so we pulled the team together. We curated and refined those strategies. The consulting firm shared all of the facts to back those strategies up to give everybody the confidence. I could still see a few skeptics in the room that had been there a long time. And in my closing comments, I made it a point to say, look, This is what we're going to do. So you said something that I want to stop on, which is you said instinct leads, and then you go looking for the data, and the data basically allows your instinct to work on steroids. What happens when the data doesn't match your instincts? That's a great question. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's hard to articulate. It is a, it sounds so trite to say it's a feeling, right? Dr. Wayne Dyer would call it the power of intention, Right. When you are so intensely focused on something and you know what? Great athletes do that all the time. You know, how do celebrities memorize those incredible lines in the theater? And right. So much of it is, you know, deep, deep focus on on your craft and what you know. And and by then years of experience and and then the trust of this team that you've put together. And so it says, wait a minute, I feel and I know this this is the best team we've ever put together. I know the Chinese consumer's 25 years younger than, than, than this. I trust in Christopher's incredible design. I trust my own marketing instincts. And so, no, if we stay united and we stay so focused on this that, that I, I think there's a 95% probability we can do it. And so, you know, I just... I, I didn't know any other way. And so so this was a I mean, it was a lot of work, don't get me wrong, but 
But we got excited. We got because we thought what we were doing was unlike what anybody else. There was no other British luxury brand of scale. Nobody was going at it digital first. Nobody was targeting a luxury customer 25 years younger. I mean, we felt like we had really found the white space. And if we could just really focus on it, we could do it. Coming up after the break, Angela talks about her move to Apple. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. uh, We'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. All right, back to my conversation with Angela Arents. Angela hadn't considered working in tech until she got a call from Tim Cook at Apple. So tell me a little bit about how you went to Apple. Yeah, I mean, you know, Tim and I had a lovely coffee when I was home one Christmas, and it was lovely. But then, you know, I go back to Burberry, and my team's around the table, and, you know, and we're killing it. You know, and it just bought the beauty business back, and it just told the board we were going to double again in five years. And so life is good. And so it was a pretty easy no. And then we actually were out on the West Coast on business. So, And I don't know, somehow someone found out I was going to be on the West Coast. And so they called again and said, you know, would you have a cup of coffee again? And would you meet a couple of other people? And and I was very honest. I don't want to waste your time, et cetera. But went to Infinite Loop and, and met a couple of executives and, and met Tim. And, and there was something he said at that point. You know, again, as you're praying for signs in life and, you know, in clarity and guidance. And, and then I had done a TED Talk on human energy and, and building talk. trust. And, oh, thanks. And so by the time I got to him, he said, I listened to your TED Talk. And he was so calm and and so deep and and just the way that he said it he said he said you know you're supposed to be here and and i said how do you know that he goes i don't know but i just i know you're supposed to be here and it was just it was a i'd never had that in an interaction with another person especially at his level and it made me really just just rethink that you know and i was over nine and a half years at burberry at that stage you know, was I supposed to be there after 10 years? Was I supposed to go back to America and try something new? And and it, and I was on my own accord, incredibly insecure. I'm 54. It's Apple for God's sake. It's the biggest, you know, it, it you know, a company I've admired for years and years and years. I don't speak that language. I am not a left brain engineer, operator, et cetera. I mean, I just, I could do everything. I could talk myself out of it forever. You probably didn't own very many hoodies at that point in your life. Zebra. <laughs> I don't think I'd hardly worn blue jeans to work. <laughs> <laughs> what was your first day of work like? 
you know, the first six months are incredibly exciting. And I think you're just honored and proud and grateful. But but I also go fairly silent because I need to listen and learn. And, you know, my dad used to always say, he used to always say it's a I think it's maybe a Mark Twain quote, but, you know, better to be thought a fool than to open your mouth and relieve them of all doubt. <laughs> and so it was like haunting me in the back of my mind. And so I just listened and listened and listened. And and uh, actually, I wrote a LinkedIn post on it. Mm-hmm. I said, um, I, I wrote the first 100 days and how you how insecure you feel. And what it if it teaches you anything, it teaches you that they wanted you for a reason. So get in your lane. Bring your gifts to the table, right? You're used to being the CEO in an industry that you grew up in for 30-some-odd years. You're used to knowing everything. Now you go in at a senior level and you know nothing. But no, wait a minute. You know what you do. And it's a titanic retail business. At that point, 55,000 employees all over the world. And so, no, wait a minute. And then you go back and you say, but, okay, so, so maybe I'm here because I'm a leader. And maybe I'm here because I'm a, I can, I'm a brand builder. I wouldn't go as far as say visionary, but I thrive on looking out two or three years and feeling what's coming and warning everybody and then uniting everybody around a strategy to, to be prepared for that. And, right? and so then you, get, you go through that because I also think that as humans, we're innately insecure. I think men and women alike. I think women will admit it and men won't, but that's yeah. another story. <laughs> I think that's so true. I kept expecting and I keep waiting for that to dissolve as I grow up, as if the wisdom of my adulthood as it deepens will remove that insecurity. And it, it's not happening yet. Mm-mm. Yeah, no, I don't think so either. But I think what you do is you get stronger and more confident in who you are Mm -hmm. and what your gifts to this world are. And then you keep yourself in a narrower lane, knowing that if I stay in this lane, I will make the contribution that I'm supposed to make while I'm on this planet. Right. I I tell my kids, it's kind of like water skiing. You don't want to be over here. You want to be in that real smooth place and try and get yourself there. Right. And then life just takes off. Yeah. Well said. So as we are talking here today, you are at the end of your tenure, very close to your last day at Apple. So as you look back on your time there, what have been your biggest lessons? It's funny. I have been this last couple of days also writing my final LinkedIn post. And uh, and I, I've actually been thinking about just that same thing. But what I wanted to do was not take it as my lessons. I wanted to take it as the lessons that I learned from 70,000 people. And so the three lessons that I got from them were, one, never forget where you came from. And what I mean by that is, no different than at Burberry, we looked back because that's your foundation, right? That's who founded the business, et cetera. And when I came into Apple, I'd go out in the field and they'd talk about, well, Steve said our job was to enrich lives and Steve said this and, right? And I could have thrown all that out, but no, let's codify that. Let's protect that. The second thing was move faster than you could ever fathom because they're waiting, And they see how much their technology is changing everything. They're living on Uber. They're staying at Airbnb, right? They're living on YouTube and Instagram. They expect your leadership to be just like that because that's the world they're living in today. So you can't wait. 
you know, I told the leaders very early on, move fast. And then the team is begging for it. And then the third one was, never forget that you have a greater responsibility. That it is not just about operating stores. It is not just about selling phones. You have a much greater responsibility. And maybe that's what Steve meant when he talked about enriching lives. And when he talked about liberal arts and technology and the impact it could have on humanity, I didn't dare use the word humanity, but I would talk to the teams about the impact they could make in their community. And that's why the Today at Apple experience, which is free of charge, teaches it's not a coincidence that it's only teaching liberal arts, how to make you a better videographer or photographer or app developer or musician, because I do believe that that's what you're going to need in the future. But I also believe that maybe liberal arts was a little bit of what was missing in the store. So you got to look back. You have to never forget where you came from. You're just coming in as a steward at a very short period of time, and you're going to turn the baton over, you know. And I always say I never ask for a title. I never ask for a raise. I've never asked for anything. All I've done is always try to do what's best for the company at that point in time, and everything else just falls into place. So I think that I my counsel to the next generation would be, be selfless, and you will make an incredible impact. Angela relies heavily on her intuition, but I think she owes her success to the way in which she has paired it with logic, right? Personally, I've got an uncomfortable relationship with my own gut. It's often right, and I'm trying to get better at trusting it, but it's hard. I want to hear from you on this. How do you balance intuition and reason? Send us a voice memo to hellomonday at linkedin.com or post on LinkedIn using the hashtag HelloMonday. If you enjoyed listening, subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. It helps new listeners find the show. And join me next week for a conversation with WeWork's Liz Burrow. She's in charge of researching what offices will look like in the future. And I want to know one thing. Will open office plans ever be over? Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. The show was produced by Laura Sim with reporting by Maya Pope-Chapelle. The show is mixed by Joe DeGiorgi. Florencia Ariando is head of editorial video. Dave Pond is our technical director. A special thanks this week to listener Angela Connor, who sent us a voice memo about time management after listening to our episode with Adam Grant. The way I manage my time is to make sure I'm actually the one managing it. I don't allow people to tell me, well, these are the two times that I can meet and that I have to accept one or the other. Our music was by Poddington Bear and Pachyderm. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. Thanks for listening.